0: you're listening to audio from trinity west seattle for other resources more information about this sermon series or to connect with us visit our website www.trinityws.com My name's Joel. If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, I'd love to do that after service, and I'm one of the pastors here. I get the chance and the privilege to open up God's Word with you here this morning. I'm really looking forward to doing that. We're going to be continuing in our Advent series that we uh, started last week, and we're looking at the Gospel of Luke and the birth narrative of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, and we get our purpose of this sermon series actually from Luke's gospel, from verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, where Luke says that the reason why he's written it is so that we can have certainty, trustworthy history, uh, that the story of Jesus is both real and true, and, and then we can build our faith upon what Luke did as a historian to go and gather up historical eyewitness testimony to, to formulate and to help us understand what happened in the story of Jesus. And today we're going to be looking at another story. Last week we looked at one. We're looking at another story, and, and it is a story, but I also got to say that this one is packed with rich Christian doctrine. Within a sh- short set of verses, I think it's 12 verses, we have the Trinity, the Virgin Conception the person of Jesus, his purpose as a Messiah, all of these things and more within only 12 verses. It's going to be amazing. I'm looking forward to getting into it with you. Let's uh, pray as we get started. God in heaven, we come before you now so thankful that you have sent Jesus to us, so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us through him, so thankful that you have uh, commissioned Luke to capture these words, to go out and talk to the people who were there and involved so that he could have the truth and write it down for us. God, would you help us to trust your word today? Would you help us to be transformed by it as we believe that we might know you more, love you more, and serve you more? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's begin. We're going to begin in Luke chapter 1 in verse 26. There are Bibles there in the pew back in front of you. I'd encourage you to open one. If you don't have one with you, you can take that one, uh, and you can even take it home if you don't own a Bible. Take that as our gift to you. Here's what it says, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name Was Mary. So this is actually picking up from last week's story. You might remember that we learned that there was an old barren woman named Elizabeth who uh, was miraculously, her and her husband Zechariah, they were miraculously able to conceive, and her son was promised to be John the Baptist, this prophet and forerunner to the Messiah. And it says here at the beginning, the sixth month, and that is referring to the sixth month of Elizabeth's. Pregnancy. And in that sixth month, God sends this messenger, this angel, Gabriel, the same guy who was the angel in the last week's story, and he's sent to a tiny little town. It says city here, but they didn't have a, a, a Greek word for tiny town, so that's why it says city. And it's really Nazareth is, is really a tiny place. It's about fifty people outside of the Sea of Galilee. And he, Gabriel, is sent to a very special person named Mary. And Mary was betrothed to a man named Joseph who was a descendant of King David. And betrothal, if you want to think of it simply, it's, it's a legally binding engagement and it's breakable only by divorce. So it's essentially as good as a marriage, except for it just has not yet been consummated. And this was very common for Jews in the first century. And Mary, at this point, was a virgin, it says. And she was a virgin in both senses of the word that was originally Greek and translated here as virgin. And the reason why I feel necessary to point that out to you is because a lot of people, uh, they, they say, well, you know, Christians, early first century Christians, they did uh, revisionist history. They, they rewrote the Bible so that it would fit with their doctrine and these kinds of things. And they, they tried to uh, accuse Christians of of imposing certain doctrines onto the text that was already there. But I want you to see, it's really clear. Mary was a virgin, and she was in both senses, again, of this Greek word here translated. There's two senses. One is that it could be a maiden, so a young, unmarried woman. In that culture, between the ages of like 12 and 16, very young, she was already betrothed. But also virgin in the way that we would use the word. She had never been with a man. And she actually makes this point later on in this same passage. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. So what does this angel have to say to the Virgin Mary? Verse 28, and he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now this shows you just how unsettling uh, standing in the presence of an angel might be. You see, most of us would think that a greeting like Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you would be very reassuring. It would be relieving. You would feel like that was a positive welcome, right? But perhaps Mary is so humble that she can't possibly imagine that that greeting is for her. Like, she's kind of looking over her shoulder going, you talking to me? You know, (laughs) she's not quite sure who this angel is addressing, and she's feeling fearful. So Gabriel has to calm her down and clarify. Verse 30, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, If there was such a thing as an angel's handbook, which I'm sure doesn't exist, but if they did have one, and you know, it's like what the older angels used to teach the younger angels how to be an angel, I'm sure that like step number one for that would be when you greet a human being, say... Do not be afraid. (laughs) That seems like like the de facto greeting that they might give. And so Gabriel gets on board with that. He says, don't be afraid. And, And he says, the favor or the grace of God is upon you, which he goes on now to describe in more detail. Verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Jesus, he will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. If you want to know who Jesus is, start, start right here. Start right here. Gabriel states explicitly what Jesus' identity is and was. Mary would conceive a son, and she should call his name Jesus, which means in Hebrew, or the, the transliteration of, of the Hebrew word Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves, or God saves, or God is salvation. You see, his name is a clue as to who this person is because he is going to be the Messiah. The Messiah was to come and save his people from the powers of darkness, including the power of Satan, including the power of sin within them and around them, including the power of death. The Messiah would come as a Savior. Now, at this point in the story, we aren't told exactly how he would go about doing that, only that he would be the Savior that Israel was waiting for. And there are echoes here of 2 Samuel chapter 7 that happened a thousand years before any of this, where the prophet Nathan comes to King David and he tells him, he says, one of your descendants will sit on your throne forever. See, as the Messiah, Jesus wouldn't just be the king for a lifetime. He would be the king for all time. He would be the greatest ruler ever known, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. Can you possibly imagine getting this kind of news? If you were Mary receiving this kind of news, it would probably feel so big you wouldn't be able to take it all in, just like it is for us to imagine it would probably feel so or sound so good you couldn't possibly accept it but what did mary do she she wants to learn more verse 34 she says and mary it says and mary said to the angel how will this be since i am a virgin now As we stated earlier, Mary knew good and well how babies are made, but she's explaining here her reason for asking how this pregnancy could be possible. She's a virgin, and it literally says here in the Greek, how will this be since I do not know a man? She's never been with a man. She's she's never uh, known a man. She's not currently with a man. Her husband and her haven't consummated their marriage. She's saying, so how will this be? That's a good question, right? I want to know the answer to that question, don't you? But before we see what Gabriel says to her in response, we've got to note that Mary's response is very, very different than the approach we heard last week from Zechariah in our story last week, right? Both of them, Zechariah and Mary, both of them question Gabriel, but Mary seems to be requesting information, not proof like Zechariah had. So, here is the response in verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, you're Here we see more of who this Messiah would be, of who Jesus is. A central truth to the Christian faith is that Jesus was born of a virgin. You know, in last week's story, Elizabeth was able to conceive, but that was a natural conception paired with a miracle that God worked. Here, in Mary's case, This is a supernatural conception. It said that the Holy Spirit would come upon her, would overshadow her. And what you aren't meant to think from that is that somehow the Holy Spirit had sexual relations with her, okay? This is not like the Mormons believe that God had sex with Mary. That's messed up. Can we be honest? That's messed up, right? Uh, That's like pagan stuff. Rather... What we are meant to to see when we we see these words, what we're meant to uh, be taken back to is Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. It's the second verse of the entire Bible, and it's where God is about to create the entire universe and all that's in it. And it said, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. See, this is telling us that God was about to do a supernatural act of new creation. See, just as God said, let light shine out of darkness, His Spirit would weave a child in her womb that would be both fully God and fully man. We call this, The incarnation. God incarnate. God in the flesh. Emmanuel, that's his name. God with us. With us. And not only do we have the virgin birth here in this narrative, but we also see the Trinity. Did you catch that? We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all at work here together in this awe-inspiring act of grace as he descends from his heavenly throne of divinity to the lowliness of humanity. Why? Why Why does he do that? He does it to save us. He comes to save you and me. Friend, if you ever wonder whether God loves you, if you ever doubt that He loves you, if you ever doubt that He loves the world, wonder no more. God's love could not be any more clear, any more obviously displayed. He loves us enough to enter into the muck and mire of humanity, to give his son as a gift, so that he might come for you and me to save us. And you might not know this God that I'm talking about here. And you, you might you might go, well, oh, yeah, I mean that sounds nice. But it, it kind of comes off to me as too great, too crazy to believe. Does it? I, I'm not so sure it does. I want to draw your attention to verse 37. Here's what it said. Gabriel said, For nothing will be impossible with God. See, this phrase here that Gabriel says, has echoes of what God said to Abraham when he told him that his hundred year old barren wife was going to conceive a child. God said in, in, uh, what is it, Genesis 18, 14, he said, is anything too hard for the Lord? Which, of course, Abraham is supposed to answer that rhetorical question with a no, right? (laughs) Is anything too hard for the Lord? Nothing is too hard for God. Or to put it another way, are you kidding me? That's how I would put it. Are you kidding me? Could anything be too hard for God? Is anything too hard for the God who created the universe with a word? No way. No way. Is there anything that's too hard for the God who sustains the universe with his word? No way. Could anything be too hard for the God who made hundreds of billions of galaxies? Could he not also be born of a virgin and take on human form? Why not? What's standing in his way? And of course, the answer is nothing, nothing, nothing. Nothing is too hard for him. Nothing will be impossible with God. I want you to receive that truth today. Would you accept it? You go, yeah, I'm, I'm all in. Nothing's impossible with God. That means that that mansion that I've been dreaming about on Leshi with the matching Teslas that sit in the front, that means it's not impossible for him. That's in my future. That's often where we, in our very ridiculous uh, American way of viewing the world, that's where our mind goes. Nothing's impossible for God. So I get the the matching Teslas, right? See, we've got to be sure to recognize that, that this statement, nothing will be impossible with God, this is about God's promises. It's not about the possibilities. This is what I mean. Just because nothing is impossible with God doesn't mean that all the possibilities that you and I are dreaming up are somehow going to become true. Yes, that all powerful God hears our prayers, and by an incredible act of grace, he does does act in light of our prayers. It's amazing. But just because nothing is impossible for God doesn't mean that God has now become like our genie in a bottle. After all, we didn't say, let lights shine out of darkness. He did. This is not about uh, us creating reality by calling on God to do the impossible. No. Nothing will be impossible with God means basically the same thing that Job meant when he said, No purpose of yours can be thwarted. It means the same thing. Nothing that he promises or plans can be stopped. Nothing. Nothing can stand in God's way. He will always do what he said he would. You say, Well, even if it means doing impossible stuff, yeah. Yeah, believe it, believe it. Even if it means making a barren woman pregnant, yes, believe it. Even if it means that the Messiah is going to be born of a virgin, yeah, believe it. Even if it means that the Messiah is both fully God and fully man, and my brain is about to explode when I try and think about that, yes, believe it. Even if it means that the Most High God comes down in weakness and humility, believe it. Even if it means that He's going to have victory over His enemies through His death on a cross, believe it. Even if it means He's going to destroy death through new creation and resurrection, Believe it. Even if it means he's going to return in judgment and eradicate evil from the earth and fully consummate his kingdom for all eternity, believe it. Do you believe that nothing will be impossible with God? Mary did. Mary believed it, even though it could have cost her everything. Do you understand this? Mary, in her culture, was basically committing social suicide in agreeing to participate in this work of God. See, in our culture, we have plenty of unwed teenage pregnancy. That's pretty normal to us at this point. In that culture, it would have been absolutely scandalous She could have been divorced from her husband. She could have been shamed and shunned and cast out of the community, left to fend for herself as a vulnerable woman, possibly putting herself into some sort of slavery, possibly becoming a prostitute in order to somehow survive. That's if she wasn't charged with adultery and murdered or executed. But Mary, with all of that on the line, she believed and she responded in humble service. Did you catch that? She said, I am the servant of the Lord. Seems kind of crazy at first, doesn't it? That she would lay all of that down on the line. But then we remember that God is the God of infinite power and authority, that nothing is impossible with Him, that He will accomplish all that He sets out to do. He will always accomplish His purpose. And so, when you think of it that way, what greater purpose could someone have than to be His servant? Again, notice how different this is from Zechariah's response in last week's story. Zechariah had grown so weary in his old age, he had stopped believing that God could work a miracle in his life. He didn't take God at his word. And and all of that, in spite of the fact that it's unlike Mary's situation. For all we know, Zechariah may not have cost him much of anything to believe God, other than the expense of a little bit of hope, maybe. And yet, in some sense, we heard Zechariah was wanting God to prove it. He was wanting God to kind of fit into his box rather than casting himself into the box that God had created for him. But the God who can do the impossible, He won't fit into our box. Amen? He just won't. And, and when we try and fit God into our box, we make a very foolish choice. We exchange the true God for a God of our own making. Instead of standing in awe of Him who made us, we, we run away from Him. We make a God in our own image, one that's only as powerful and capable as we are, one who's manageable, one who doesn't require us taking risks in order to trust Him, one who would never inconvenience us with His plans and call us to be willing to sacrifice everything for Him. Have you tried to fit God into your Box. Have you, have you made God into your own image, into your own idea of who He is? See, Mary, in contrast to Zechariah, in contrast to our tendency to put God in a box, she's this, this young woman. We'd even call her a girl, right? She's like 12 to 16 years old, something in there. She isn't arguing with God's plan or His promises, even though it's inconvenient for her. Even though it's going to require tremendous sacrifice. Even though it's going to require her to risk everything. And so why does she do it? The answer is love. She stands in awe of his power and his majesty and his kindness and his grace, and she loves him. And what I don't mean when I say love is it's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling, right? No, no, no. Warm, fuzzy feelings don't lead somebody to sacrifice everything, this is devotion. This is absolute devotion to God. She believes him. She takes him at his word. See, Mary was ready for this moment. Before Gabriel ever showed up, she was already anticipating the coming of the Messiah. She was waiting for him. So she was ready. And now she's going, I'm all in. I don't even know how this whole thing works, this whole virgin birth thing. I don't even get it, just like all of us don't get it. She's going, I don't understand how this could be, but I'm all in. I get to carry the Messiah, the Son of God? Oh man, what a privilege. And so Mary responds to God's plan appropriately. And likewise, as we stand in awe of the God who can do the impossible... We will love and serve Him. Mary's response to God should be our response to God. We should respond in the same way. Respond to His grace through love, which flows out into sacrificial service. Now, you might say, well, what exactly, okay, love and sacrificial service, what exactly does that look like? Because we're not giving birth to the Messiah, right? <laughs> if we're supposed to respond like Mary, it's not going to involve us giving birth to the Messiah. So what exactly are we talking about when we say love and service? Well, it's, it's very simple. It's loving obedience to God, sacrificial service to others. And if you're in a place in your life today where you're going, I'm not obeying God, I'm regularly disobeying God, then you're you're probably not seeing this God for who He truly is. If you have no desire to obey God, maybe if it's even only in a certain area of your life, you're probably not seeing this God for who He truly is. If you don't want to serve other people, you're probably not seeing this God for who He truly is. And so my encouragement, admonishment to us all today is to stand in awe of this God who chose to come down, to take on human flesh so that he could save us. As we stand in awe of the God who can do the impossible, we will love and serve him. Let's pray. Father God, as I just alluded to a moment ago, our minds are blown by what you are capable of. We can hardly conceive of how good this truth is that you have been born of a virgin, that you, God Almighty, have humbled yourself and taken on flesh. God, it. it, it's so hard for us to understand how this could be possible. But as we stand in awe of who you are, God, we, we want to devote ourselves to you. Help us to believe. Help us to embrace this truth to the extent that we are devoted to you, that we love you, that we, that we serve you. We pray that this time of Advent would be especially focused on those things, on remembering who you are, what you've done, what we're waiting for you to do, and what we do in the meantime. Help us, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.